have uh, doubtless read the story of the Velveteen Rabbit growing up, or if you have children, you may have, have read it to them. It's one of the classic uh, books of children's literature, and it chronicles the story of the stuffed rabbit, then his quest to become real through the love of his owner. And when the boy loses his china dog, when it's misplaced, uh, the maid quickly gives the boy this velveteen rabbit as a replacement, as a holdover. But the velveteen rabbit becomes this companion. The boy can't be separated from it, and the boy falls in love with him. No matter what, even when the velveteen rabbit becomes shabbier and dingier, the boy loves the rabbit. And this dialogue takes place. What is real? The rabbit asks the skin horse. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you were made, says the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, you become real. Does it hurt? asks the rabbit. Sometimes, says the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to the people who don't understand. Once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. God's love is powerful, and it's offered to everyone. It says you can be made real no matter what anyone else says. You will be lovely and not ugly to me. But like the love of the children to the velveteen rabbit, God's love changes you. God's love transforms you. And so not everyone is willing to take hold of that love. Not everyone is willing to receive that love because they know, we know instinctively that if we encounter Jesus, if we encounter the love of God, that it will change us forever. And it will change us drastically. Not everyone will take hold of it. There's a, there's a no one of the offer of the gospel because not everyone will receive it. But there's also an everyone of the gospel, because it's given and offered to everyone without respect to their background, to their performance, to their behavior, to their culture, to their race. There's a no one of the gospel and an everyone of the gospel. And to get to the everyone, you have to go through the no one. Let's look at this passage from those two perspectives. There's a, a no one of the gospel, first of all. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a leader. He's a person who's supposed to weigh in and give judgments on spiritual matters. He's the authority on what is true. So Nicodemus, noticing this unconventional rabbi who's itinerant, walking around and gathering a following, goes out and seeks him and challenges him and asks him, okay, we see you're doing these great things, but are you really from God? No one could do these things that you do if you're not from him, but you haven't come from us. You haven't come through our system. You're a rabbi, but we're the rabbinical people. We're the ones that train rabbis. Who are you, Jesus? And Jesus, cryptic as ever, doesn't answer his challenge, doesn't answer his question. He doesn't defend his own calling, but he, in fact, challenges Nicodemus's calling. He says, no one can see the kingdom 
unless they are born again. Now, you have to realize how, realize how utterly offensive this is. Nicodemus is the epitome of a cultural, intellectual, spiritual insider. He's the teacher of Israel. What do you mean I can't see the kingdom? What do you mean unless I'm born again? I'm a teacher. I'm the teacher of Israel. Of course I'm in the kingdom. The Jews are the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. Jesus is challenging his record. He is offending him by saying, your cultural record, your performance, your behavior, your background, your status as a rabbi are useless to the kingdom, useless to you getting in the kingdom. Now, you and I may not be quite so religiously adept as Nicodemus. We might not have quite the record that he does, but we're all very good at the religious game. Because every now and then, no matter how we see ourselves, every now and then something impressive, something good, something uh, successful, something important, something positive bubbles up in our lives. And we're tempted to say exactly the opposite thing that we say when something negative happens. When something negative happens, we tell ourselves, this isn't all that I am. I'm a complex person. This doesn't define me, this negative occurrence. But when the good thing happens, we instinctively say, this is me. See what I just did? See what I've accomplished? That's me. I'm that important person. I may have shared this quote with you before from David Letterman in an interview. He says, every night you're trying to prove yourself, you prove yourself worth. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. If I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person. If I come short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. The most dangerous time for ministers is right after a sermon. Because if we feel like it went great, if we feel like it was good, then we can destroy relationships the next week because we live so full of ourselves. Look at what I've accomplished. That defines me as a person, as a minister, because I did good in this public setting. If it's terrible, however, or even mediocre, we tend to scurry into holes of distractions. We avoid people. We overcompensate in other areas by performing, trying to say, okay, maybe my sermon didn't go so good, but look what I've done over here. Don't look here. Look here. Religion, religious people, whether we are following a a traditional religion or whether it's just the, the rules, the religions of our culture, of our community, of our cause, it demands that we follow the rules in order to become acceptable. Living the gospel, on the other hand, means that we become utterly dependent upon the work of someone else. That we say it's everything about Jesus and nothing about me that makes me acceptable. Everything about Jesus and nothing about me. The Velveteen Rabbit says, I may be shabby, I may be dingy, I may be ugly in appearance, but I am real. I am loved far more deeply than any external qualification. 
If you want to know who I am, don't look at my fur that's rubbed off. Look at that boy who loves me. The Christian says, if you want to know that I'm real, don't look at my record. Don't look at my behavior, my performance, but look at him. Look at what he's done for me. Look at Jesus. That's the gospel, and that's what transforms both the good and the bad, both the positive and the negative in our lives. Because with the gospel, if we understand it rightly, if we understand what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, we can absorb the negative things without despair because we say, we know that God says you are deeply loved. And we can appraise the good appropriately because we know that God says, I am the one that makes you lovely. You see, it helps us to tr- transforms the good and the bad. It's not just a new way of seeing. That is, I have seen the light. I have apprehended the truth. Or as Nicodemus says, I perceive, Jesus, that you are a great teacher. It's far more than that, far more fundamental. It's a whole new order of being. Because Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. Now, studies show that most Americans want to live by a born-again person. That's way down on the list. Of all the different stripes of people, that born-again people are way down on the list. Herb Cain, who was a writer for the San Francisco Chronicle and died a few years back, said the problem with born-again people is that they're in even bigger pain the second time around. (laughs) Or as P.J. O'Rourke says in... Uh, quoted in the bulletin, making fun of born-again people is like shooting dairy cows with a high-powered rifle and scope. Born-again people are seen as, what, wet blankets (laughs) to everyone's fun, as dogmatic fundamentalists, as very conservative rule followers trying to curry favor with each other, trying to curry favor with God. And maybe that's true for many born-again people. But it exactly contradicts Jesus' metaphor here. Because Nicodemus is the ultimate rule follower. Nicodemus is the ultimate conservative, the ultimate moralist. And Jesus tells him he must be born again. Nicodemus, I don't commend you for your record. I'm not here just to tell you a new way to allocate your resources. I'm not here just to fill in the gap so that you can then be presentable based upon me and your record. No, Nicodemus, you must be an entirely new person. You, you see, born again is not a, a subset of Christianity. It's not a checkbox on the Christian census form. Born again is Christianity. No one is a Christian, whether you're Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant. No one's a Christian unless they are born again. Christianity is born again Christianity. But notice, this term, again, the Greek is anothane. It can have a dual meaning. It can have one of two meanings. It can either mean again or it can mean from above. And Jesus doesn't clarify which. The master of double entendre, right? But Nicodemus, it seems at first, can only grasp the first meeting. How can one enter into his mother's womb for a second time? He's talking about the physical being born again, the the repeated birth. And he says, this cannot be, that's absurd. And Jesus just restates his point. He says again, 
that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born of water and spirit. And then he says, he adds a bit of commentary. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and spirit gives birth to spirit. And he says, the wind blows where it wills, and you can hear it, but you can't see it and don't know where it comes from. Now, flesh, when we talk about that in the Bible, it's not simply skin, and it's not all of those bad pagan people that misbehave. Flesh is the whole organizing principle of a life that seeks to be lived independent from God, to exist on its own power, and to live apart from God's presence. That's flesh. And so that encompasses all of us, because we all live in that way from time to time, whether we're Christian or not. We say, I want what I want, and I'm going to seek this out. Flesh cannot see what I'm doing, Jesus says, because it's committed to the one principle, the foundational principle that's against my kingdom, and that is self-sufficiency, self-dependency. That's fleshly living. When you say to God, I'm fine without you. Now, the metaphor of the wind is meant to say that being born again doesn't happen by your decision at all. Wind is invisible. You can't see it, but you know it's there. It's mysterious, and it's uncontrollable, certainly in this time, but even in modern times. We can't control the wind. We can harness it for energy, but we can't control it. We can only for a couple of days be able to predict when it's coming in a hard way. What Jesus is saying is that you cannot control being born again any more than you can control the wind, any more than you instigated your initial physical birth. That's how much control you have of being born again. Now, if we're paying attention, this should offend everyone in the room, not just the irreligious people, but us inside the church, the religious people, because he's saying that what binds us all together and what prevents us from trusting him is that we are all predisposed to trusting ourselves. Flesh doesn't denote irreligious people, but religious too, all of us. No one who is trusting themselves can get in. And we're powerless to affect the type of spiritual transformation that Jesus is talking about. We can't control it. It comes upon us. Mark Lilla, who is a professor of humanities at Columbia University uh, in New York, wrote in the New York Times a few years back, what does it mean to be born again? One thing Jesus seems to be telling Nicodemus is that he must recognize his own insufficiency that he will have to turn his back on his autonomous, seemingly happy life and be reborn as a human being who understands his dependency on something greater. That seems to be a radical challenge to our freedom, and in fact, it is. It's a very, very exclusive thing to say that no one can get into the kingdom except under the circumstances that I lay out. It's very exclusive, but it's exactly the opposite type of exclusivity than what we would expect. And it's different from every other exclusive religion. Born-again Christianity is toughest to believe for exactly the opposite crowd than what we would traditionally think. You see, you can't really choose to become a Christian at all. You can choose to become a Muslim or a Buddhist, but you can't choose to become a Christian. If you want to be a Muslim or a Buddhist, you identify as such. You say, I am now 
a, a Buddhist or a Muslim, and you adopt the code, you adopt the system, you agree with the theology. And who's excluded? It's the one who misbehaves. It's the one who can't follow the system. The one that's excluded is the rule breaker. But Christianity is an invitation to the rule breaker. Christianity is built around the rule breaker. It's not the immoral person that says, I don't want to follow the rules that is most difficult, has the most difficulty with Christianity, but it's those of us who are very good at following the rules. The one who wants credit for being included, the one that says, because of my background, because of my degree, because of my orthodoxy, you should let me in. Those are the people that have the most trouble with Christianity. It's religious people. You have to be born again, Nicodemus, from your rule following. You have to be born again from the system that says you can make it on your own. Even you, Nicodemus, must be born again. You need total and complete transformation. There is a world of difference, friends, between religion and between, between that and being born from above. It is possible to have lots and lots of religion, lots and lots of obedience, and yet have zero spiritual life. Christianity is the religion that is most difficult for religious people like Nicodemus, like you, and like me. No one can get in on their own. No one can get in by following the rules. That's the no one of the gospel, and it precedes the everyone. You see, when you see John 3.16, you probably don't realize what Jesus has just said before that, how difficult Christianity is, how no one can get in of their own accord, of their own decision. Right before we read this famous passage of the expansiveness of God's love, we say that it's very narrow, too. It's very difficult. That doesn't sound very loving, we might say. If God so loved the world, why is there any boundary at all to his love? Exclusivity is a a concept that that we're very allergic to in the 21st century, especially in the West. But we need to realize that though 21st century Western culture would think this statement to be stupid, God loves those who are his in a unique way. Those of us in the West uh, in the 21st century think that is a stupid statement to make. But if you go to the ancient world or you go to a traditional culture, they find the statement God loves everyone equally is a stupid idea. So we need to be careful not to become beholden to the prejudices of our own culture or our own historical moment. In reality, the uniqueness and the universality of the gospel go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other or you utterly sterilize God's love. Religious people like Nicodemus, they embrace the uniqueness and are motivated by fear of stepping outside the boundary. They're the unique ones, and so they can't assimilate with another person. They can't become like someone else because they fear that they may not be one of the unique ones anymore. Their relationship with God is love me because I am lovable. Love me, God, because I have complied with everything you've asked me to do. 
That's what the religious person says. They embrace the uniqueness because what it says about them. It says they're unique. They're good. They've done what God has asked them to. Of course they're going to embrace the uniqueness. And in their compliance, they're very quick to shut others out and limit the universality of the gospel. Now, postmodern people or metamodern or millennials, whatever we're calling them now, they embrace the universality and are attracted to the apparent freedom of just choosing your own religion, choosing the one that seems most tolerant and most suits their values. But there's no, re- no uniqueness among religious systems. Everyone should receive God's love independent of what they actually believe about God. But the gospel is unique and it's universal. There's a no one and an everyone. What is utterly unique about the everyone of the gospel is that it goes through a cross. It goes through the death of Jesus. And it says that God endures everything in order to love you. That God endures the death of his own son in order to have you, in order to make you lovely. He makes his own son ugly. Every one of the gospel is that it is the uniqueness of that is that it goes through a cross. It goes through the sacrifice of God. The cross is the, the PDA of God, not blackberries or trios, but the public display of affection. The PDA. He is saying, Look how much I love you. Look to the lengths that I would go to have you. But there has to be a no one too. Or else you undermine the whole need for a cross. And you make Jesus' death probably the most sad and unnecessary event in all of human history. There has to be a no one and an everyone or we lose the gospel. We lose the love of God. Leslie Newbigin, who is a, a missionary to India, wrestled with this idea because he ministered day in and day out with people who were very well behaved, very moral, raised good children, ra- cared for their children. And what do I do about this? What do I do about their claims to truth? He says to reject the uniqueness and the universality in the alleged interest of mutual tolerance among the world's religion is to deny the message at its center of all of them, not just Christianity. If there are many different revelations, the human family has no center for its unity. If the Krishna of the Puranas and the Jesus of the Gospels are both revelations of God, then we must say, and this is what Hinduism in the end does say, that God is unknown and unknowable. Each of us in the end shut up in his own world of ideas, He must find God in the depths of his own being because there is no action by which God gives himself to be known by us. The uniqueness, his only son, corresponds to the universality, whoever, because God is love in action. In other words, if you lose either the uniqueness or the universality, the no one or the everyone, you not only minimize the love of God, but you lose his knowability altogether. From which center do you say this is true? Everyone is invited, but everyone can't come in. Not because of the limits of God's love, but because 
of the limits of our own willingness to see ourselves in need. Now, if all of that just went over your head, if I used too many big words or if you didn't get enough coffee and the universality uniqueness just kind of sailed right over you, tune back in because we're almost done and I want you to get this part. Because what about Nicodemus? What happened to him? Now, it could have been that he's checking up on Jesus on behalf of the establishment, right? He's the leader of the Sanhedrin. And he could be coming to Jesus to say, buddy, get in line. We, we are the authorities. We are the spiritual insiders. I don't know what you're doing out in the fields of Galilee, but here in Jerusalem, you need to play by our rules. It could be that. Or he could be truly perplexed, investigating. He could be seeking. Now, if it's the former, if he's just checking out Jesus on behalf of the ruling class, his responses to him seem to be challenges from that class. Get in line. Follow our rules. Follow our codes. I see you're a great teacher, but you didn't come through our system. And so his challenges become rather snarky. Oh, we know, Jesus, that you're a great teacher. But how could this be? How could you be born again? How could you go into your mother's womb another time? Be very snarky. But what do we see about this interaction that gives us some clues? He's coming under the cover of darkness. Why would he do that? Why would he not challenge Jesus in the front of everyone in broad daylight? If he was coming to say, Jesus, get in line and follow us, He would do that in broad daylight in the town square. But no, he comes under the cover of darkness. So it seems he's intrigued with Jesus' message, but maybe still worried about the opinion of his religious friends. And he says very clearly, no one could do these things if God wasn't with him. No one could do them. It's almost as if he's saying, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. I see you're doing these great things. You must be from God, but it's not equating yet. Help me understand. Now, later in John's gospel, he shows up, Nicodemus does, in two prominent and very sympathetic settings. And it seems what John is doing is he's being very subtle, and he's saying, do you remember this episode back in John 3? Well, here's what became of Nicodemus. I left you wondering, and I left you in suspense, but now, chapters in, Look at what's happening. He defends Jesus before his accusers. And then later it says Nicodemus is the one that helps prepare Jesus' body for burial. All of this together leads us to believe that John is saying that he is sincere in his questions. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus as a fellow rabbi and saying, I don't quite understand what's going on. I don't understand how you do these miracles. You have this crowd following you, but yet... You're different. You're unconventional. You're not one of us. If anyone could get in on their religious credentials, it would be Nicodemus. But he comes to Jesus, hat in hand, and says, Are you the one? Are you the one, Jesus, that's going to make this all better? Are you the one that's the hope of Israel? Nicodemus has every religious and moral credential, yet he is utterly changed. It's not those outside who have a hard time hearing the good news. It's us. It's the church. It's us churchy religious people that have a difficult time with the gospel because we can't step outside of ourselves long enough to see 
that our good works will never qualify us for God's love. We stumble over both the no one and the everyone. We see ourselves like the brand new velveteen rabbit, loved because of how beautiful we are. But yet Jesus looks at us and he sees that our fur is rubbed off, that we're not quite so shiny as we once thought. He knows that we're shabby and dingy, but he loves us anyway. He wants you to be real. He wants you to be honest about where you are and to say, yes, Jesus, I have tried all these different things. I've tried religion. I've tried belonging to my culture. I've tried standing on the back of my back of my degrees, of my family, of whatever. And I can't do it anymore. I'm tired. I see that I'm shabby and dingy and my fur is rubbed off. But Jesus, you say you'll love me in spite of that. You will make me real. Friends, if we'll stop trying to hide our broken parts by our behavior, we we'll may see the gospel for the very first time. Jesus says no one can come in on their own record, but everyone can be accepted on the basis of mine. The gospel can change anyone who is willing to say that, who is willing to say on my record I can't stand, but on Jesus' record I am loved, I am real, I am set free. Jesus says, as we sang in the song a few minutes ago, hide yourself in me. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the gospel that can change anyone. Anyone can be hidden in Jesus and come to God fully clean, come to God lovely and beautiful and forever transformed. That's our hope. Let's pray for that now. Father, there are so many things that distract us from seeing the expansiveness of your grace the expansiveness of your love. We don't see ourselves as all that needy, and so we envision a a dinky little cross. We envision just a slight bit of grace. Father, help us to see just how far we as human beings fall short, just how far we religious people fall short of you. And Lord, would you help us to be transformed by the gospel? Lord, I pray that you would let us see the depths of our sins so that we can see the height of your love and be forever changed. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.